Welcome to the Squirrel Cage, featuring spirited discussion on 12-step recovery topics with occasional guests, hosted by some guys who say they have double-digit sobriety and sponsors. Since we hate long intros, you can hear more about who we are and how to communicate with us after the podcast. Hi, this is Cal, and I usually co-host with Chris, but tonight we're going to do something different, something we said we wouldn't do, which is present a good old-fashioned AA pitch, sometimes affectionately known as a drunkalogue. Be advised that this recording was made towards the beginning of the COVID crisis and is from a conference call from his home group, so you'll have to provide the laughter, the tears, and the applause. Also, it was recorded a thousand miles away by a microphone leaned against a cell phone speaker. While there aren't any clicks, pops, feedback, or background noises, the sound quality is very poor. Once you get past that, you should find the recording very understandable and hopefully very entertaining. So without further delay, this is John from the Los Angeles area with over 30 years in AA. The recording lasts about 35 minutes. Yeah, so I'm John, and I am an alcoholic. So here we go. A happy birthday, Pat. That's beautiful. Ten years. It's just You've just been an amazing member of the studio group, you know, and all these women that you work with. And I've had to wrestle with her to talk to some of the new guys, chase her away. She gets everybody. It's a beautiful thing to see, that activeness. Also, I want to really thank uh, Earl for asking me to do this. I used to love doing it so much because it made me feel kind of useful because I got this kind of crazy story. And, you know, people asked me to to come and share a lot, and I like that. And, um, you know, an old friend of mine, a mentor, said he thought I liked speaking a little too much. So maybe it's been good with my health that I've had to back off. But um, I'm thrilled to be doing this, you guys. I'm grateful, uh, Glenn and, and the guys out in the uh, England Empire and you guys out there and people up north and everywhere else. I just told a few people, and I guess they told a few people, and on it goes. So I'm just really glad to be doing this. I don't know how long it's been since it's called, but it's been years. And, um, man, it's just so nice to be sitting here in my, uh, you know, in my T-shirt, and I've got clothes on and everything, but I'm sitting in my, you know, my recliner, you know, just the way I would want to do it at a meeting, but they wouldn't let me. Um, so what what happened, what I used to be like and what I'm like now? But what I used to be like is, is kind of harder because I, I also was a blackout drinker. So I, uh, I mean, just a quick background, I guess. My my father was, was a, a coal miner in, in Glasgow area, Scotland. And my mother was a, a, the oldest kid in a single mother uh, household in a Catholic tenement in Stirling, Scotland, called the Rappel. Anybody that's, that's just one of those places may as well be Nickerson's Gardens or Elysium Housing Project. It's a pretty rough place. And um, when they met, um, well, I was born. I was born over there in Stirling. And when I was little, they, uh, you know, they wanted. I think my mother wanted to get him out of the coal mines, so they came to the United States. And we spent a short time in New York and New Jersey. And came out here where there was a, actually a, a Scotch-Irish kind of a community out here in Venice and Santa Monica. So we landed in uh, Venice, California, and uh, on those apartments off of Washington there on Grand Canal. And I don't know, I was maybe eight years old. i got to tell you guys, for a, for a budding alcoholic, it was just an amazing place to grow up in the 60s. Scary as hell. <laughs> you know, I felt like, uh, what was his name? Forrest Gump, you know, I'm 
I'm walking down this alley, and these you know these big kids behind me go, "Hey, you!" You know, and I, I was running like, "Run, Forrest, run!" You know, you know, I ran across Dennis running from these these cats. You know, and that happened a bit, and uh, got knocked around a bit. But I want to tell you that the first time, I don't know, I was 12, 13 years old. I um, got a bottle of uh, I think it was Ripple, Pagan Pink. Changed my life immediately. I'm 12, 13 years old. We got our own chapter of the Hell's Angels down there, and you know I'm running around terrified. And that bottle of Ripple wine, man, I just turned around. And some cat said, "Who are you looking at?" Changed my life. It empowered me. Alcohol was a spirit, man. It raised me up. It allowed me to just be what I thought I wanted to be. You know, some kind of cool. You know, I think they called us canal canal rats back then. You know, little kids running around. But it was a fun place. I mean, you know, we take these old uh, telephone pole pieces and old doors, and we put it all together and make a raft. And, you know, we get these big sticks, and we go up and down the canals, and they used to go all the way down to the to the jetty there. And um, it was a lot of fun. We'd make some punk walk the plank into the water, and it really stunk back then. It was horrible. I mean, we lived there because we were poor. So, you know, there was a lot of interesting people. There was beatniks and... Uh, all that good stuff. So it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I don't know where it came from, but I I mean, I, I started to, my father had some back trouble, and I started stealing his pills out of the, the medicine cabinet. I don't know where I got all this. I just started doing that. And the next thing you know, I'm down the, down the alley with a couple guys sniffing glue, and I just it was just a party all the time, you know, and I never slowed down, never slowed down for a minute. Uh, by the time I got into high school, I mean, I already had a problem with alcohol. And, um, you know, I would get drunk at, at lunch. Took a lot of drugs, but um, that was just what was going on. It was the 60s, and uh, alcohol was my magic elixir, like Abby said. Just changed my life. And it enabled me to, you know, got into a band, you know. I, uh, Mike, Mike and I, we... We met one time, our bands were playing a dance somewhere at school, and you know, we went out for a break and had a cigarette. And, you know, the reason we never really hooked up is because he loved speed and I loved them barbiturates, you know. So we didn't have much in common back then. We had a lot in common now. Being sober together, it's beautiful. I graduated from Venice High School, I think it was 1971. I only know that I graduated because some years back my mother gave me some papers of mine she'd been saving, and one of them was a diploma. I don't remember being there, but I graduated. I was there. So, you know, that kind of stuff was just a regular occurrence for me. And it really wasn't long before friends were, you know, like, I mean, this is Venice, California, now in the late 60s. You know, I'm a teenager and, and, and into the early 70s. Friends are starting to tell me, you can't come over if you're drinking, John. Because let's say, I mean, you know, I had heroin addict friends. I remember being at the club, got sober at the club. By the way, that... That happy birthday to Pat just brought me right back to the Alano Club in the old days, you know, when we sang like that. Kind of scary. Um, so now, where was I? I, um, I don't remember. Well, friends weren't allowing me to come over and stuff because of my behavior because I was appearing more or less insanely drunk. And to give you an idea, there's this one thing I used to tell when I spoke all the time that um, kind of puts it in perspective, I guess. I I was, you know, it's only Greg, Greg's on. He was there, actually. I borrowed, uh, I lived in this back house on Palm, Palms Avenue. 
and uh, the front house was this family. They they sold weed, and the guy in the middle, Mike, he was a uh, not sure what he was. I think he was shooting cocaine all the time. And I had the little back house. In fact, Greg lived in my garage there for a while. So I got thrown out into the house, but that's another story. I remember being at the Lano Club one night, and this guy gets up and he says, my name's so-and-so, and I'm a dope fiend and an alcoholic. Like, that's an extra special kind of bad alcoholic. And I was like, well, I didn't. It went right over my head because I remember the heroin addicts in my life were like, John, don't come over, man. You know, you can't come over. You drink, you, you know, I brought attention to me, you know. They didn't want that. These guys wanted to sit in the shadows and stay loaded, you know. The, the heroin addicts looked down on me. Um, I'm living in that house in Palm. We had a motorcycle club next door. I don't remember what they were, but, yeah, they were, they were okay with us, you know. Anyway, um, I'm in my back house in Palm, and I get up in the morning, and this was my routine by my mid-20s or early-20s even. I get up in the morning, I put an album on. In fact, I listened to that before uh, before the meeting because I needed to calm down from trying to find Abby's cell phone, which we failed to do. Um, and I put on this album, uh, John Clemmer Touch. Just a nice, smooth saxophone, little keyboard and stuff. And just, I'd mellow out. I'd get a tall can of Schlitzmott liquor, which was, and a joint. I'd crack that open, I'd, I'd sip on that, you know, throw up a little yellow vial to get that, that can of beer down, you know, smoke on the joint, sort of, you know, it's kind of like my 11th step back then before I got sober, you know. I needed one back then. And so I'm sitting there listening to the music, and by the second or third tune, I'm like, I'm getting grooved in, and I can get up, and I can get the whiskey, get a few shots in me, take a, well, I, like I said, I love barbiturates, but um, Greg will confirm that quaaludes whatever i take that stuff i'd be ready to go out you know well we were going on a motorcycle ride that day and so i you know i did my morning routine and i went outside and everybody's sitting on their bikes there and i jumped on the bike and said let's go you know we're gonna ride up north somewhere the guy next to me turned around and says we just got that i mean i we just i went in the house and in a blackout after we i'd even spilled the bike once and it wasn't mine I was told. Anyway, I get back in the house, and um, I thought I was just getting up, and it was morning. I came out of the blackout, and I got the beer and the joint, and I sat down, and then I went out there to go on the ride, and we'd already gone and come back. So, you know, it was kind of like the old Star Trek where you get, you know, being here and there, and you're trying to figure out. When I came to AA, they're like telling me to act as if, and I said, shit, I already know how to do that. I know how to act like I know who you are and what we're doing, you know? That was a common occurrence for me. I couldn't live without alcohol. I just couldn't do it, you know. It gave me everything, and, and it started to turn on me more and more and more. You know, I mean, it was the point where people didn't want me around, you know, and I was, you know, I was getting sick a lot and a lot of problems and my behavior, all that stuff, you know. It just was a nightmare. Um, I mean, I had a lot of fun at the beginning. Believe me, it was a blast, you know, until I got to about 19 or 20, and, you know, it was more a problem for other people than me for quite a long time. But uh, I knew my problem was that I was insane because I knew I was insane because I drank before I went anywhere. I drank when I was there and I drank when I got home. I didn't tell people how much I drank and I always seemed to drink more than everybody around me. And this was party time on the beach. You know, every night we'd have fires and, you know, just crazy stuff, you know. And the stuff we did is canal baths. It's horrible. You know, we're just little, you know, criminals. I had a lot of friends that, you know, broke into houses for fun and, 
cook some food and steal a few things and you know, kind of just crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, just never got caught on that stuff. And I had a lot of amends to make for sure. And I got sober. But I think it was at 20. I was at the house in Palms. Greg was living there in the back, I think. And um, I'd seen this movie called Lost Weekend. And I didn't know anything about alcoholism. It never occurred to me that I'd be alcoholic or any of that. But I saw that movie one night, and um, there was a scene in it where the guy was in some hospital or something, and he was, you know, detoxing, coming out, and he went into some keys, I guess. I didn't know all that then. I was just watching it, and he was laying there, and there was this, something was crawling up the, the wall. He was looking at it. Something, I think it was, might have been a bat or something, flew in the window and bit this thing on the neck, and blood was dripping down the wall, and he started screaming like a madman. And somehow I identified with that. Because what was happening to me at that point and I didn't know what it was, but I'd, I'd come to in the morning, and there was flies all around, you know, and it, it, you know, one would land on the dog's nose, and it's sitting there looking at me, and they're flying around me, and I'm like, whoa, and I go outside, and they're all over outside, and I started to realize this wasn't real. And I hadn't taken LSD in years, man. Since I stopped it as a teenager, I took too much of that. And I just, a couple of drinks, and it went away. And I found out later it was the DT. The guy in AA told me that. I thought, man, I'm really crazy, you know. I didn't think anything about alcoholism. So it just was going on like that. And, and um, so I was in the house in Palms, and I, I looked in the phone book, and there it was, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called the number, and they sent a guy out to take me to a meeting. His name was Ben, big Swedish guy. And uh, he took me to Ohio Street. I don't remember much about it. I didn't relate to anything. Um, I remember that a lady gave me a chocolate bar. She said it would help me with the shake. And I, re I mean, I don't remember years of my life. And I remember this lady handing me a chocolate bar in the, in the parking lot of Ohio Street in West L.A. You know, just a kind act. So I always remember that. A kind act goes a long way. You may not get it till later, but they get it. Because, uh, you know, a mean act goes pretty well, too, in the other direction. So this kindness thing is you know, Abby said, you know, this, you know, keep her, her mouth closed. I haven't learned how to do that. I still say way too much, one, two, three things too long, get myself in trouble. I've always like to say if I said half as much, my life would be twice as good. Abby probably confirmed with that, too. Um, so uh, I go to AA. It made no sense to me at all. I thought, oh, brother, what is this, you know? And I went for a while didn't do anything for me and uh, you know of course I ended up back in AA many more times because you know I started getting drunk driving in fact I, I uh, well in one relationship I, I met it well before before they put us in you know treatment centers and stuff they threw us in psych units and I've been in uh, three of them and uh, I was in six floor Brotman uh, psych unit there the lock up there and you know, God, I went, I went back there on a panel this one time. And I thought, geez, I was in here. These people, you know, I was in there twice. You know, of course, I, I met a girl in there. It's a great. I, I got to tell you, folks, you go to psych units, don't get involved in a relationship there. You don't need that kind of excitement. But this lady was a heroin addict, and I'm a drunk, like barbiturates, and um, get a pass and play house. You know, and uh, things got rough for us pretty quick. 
and uh, we moved up the crest line up uh, by Arrowhead there. Little cabin, thought we'd start it fresh. Well, this woman, Sandy, we had a kid together, my daughter, Kiana, she's 36, 37 now, she's 37. She's beautiful, but she's also a crystal nest baby. It's been very painful for her and for, for me. Uh, when I did finally get sober, the one thing that, that I want that I wanted to stay alive to see that little girl again. You know, she was three years old, I think, when I got sober. And it just, you know, that was the reason to stay alive, the only reason. So we were up in the mountains there, and, and you know, I mean, right away, there's a, the older uh, members of a, of a very prominent old uh, motorcycle gang uh, lived up there. You know, of course, we got hooked up with them. I mean, I can find lowlifes anywhere back in the day, you know. And we're in a beautiful place, and all the weekenders come up, you know, to have fun, the snow, and play in the beach and stuff. And, you know, we're just doing what we do up there, you know. Started a little business and trying to... At that point, I couldn't drink anymore. No one would allow me anywhere with drinking. So I had started to take... Well, when I got put in those psych units and stuff, they started giving me Valium and sleeping pills and stuff. And I thought, okay, I found a way to live without alcohol. So basically, as an alcoholic, I switched to drugs to hold me into my skin so I could pretend to be a human being and go around and... You know, this, this woman, Sandy, and I, she, her first husband was a hell's angel, so that would give you a clue. Not that I was a saint by, by any means, but I had good friends in my life as well as the lowlights. And, uh, not saying they're lowlights, no offense to motorcycle clubs. I'm, my best friends are heroin addicts and motorcycle members, so it was pretty crazy up there. And, and we're up there a couple of years, and we're, you know, we started to beat the hell out of each other. She was pretty crazy, and she was treating her mental illness with heroin. And we got involved in that. I hate, I, I never liked speed. And I got into crystal meth up there for six months, you know, every day. You know, I've only taken crystal meth once for six months, you know. And it just, you know, I lost a whole lot of weight and teeth and everything else. And, um, you know, and, and Sandy and I just beat the hell out of each other. She was good with them nunchucks. She'd go out there and practice on them while she'd chase me down the street with those things, you know. And I, I'd get up at three or four in the morning and go, where is she? And I'd go out back on the hill there down the slope and she'd, gardening with a flashlight, you know, on the on fucking speed. Anyway, that was a real nightmare, and, and eventually I knew I was. I started drinking again. And that's when I lose control. With drugs, I could control them somewhat, you know. Now, please, you know, if you don't identify with me, you know, wait till the next person hears the story, because we're all different. But I'll tell you, this is one thing that I knew pretty early on, that when I take a drink, I can't stop. I can't stop. I never could. If I took a drink now, I may not take a second one, but it's only a matter of time that that allergy and that obsession all kind of grinds together, and I just got a drink. I mean, I had my daughter for a little while when I left Sandy, and I mean, I just I couldn't do it. I was she was scared of me. The kid was scared of me. I was drunk. I mean, you know the personality change. These little kids. I mean, that's the thing that I know about my alcoholism that it didn't just hurt me. It hurt anybody that cared about me. Anybody. We come into the program, we tell our stories, and we laugh and joke. That's all fun. But, man, there's a lot of suffering goes along with our alcoholism for a lot of people other than us, you know. At least in my case it was. I didn't know that at the time, you know. And so eventually I was in AA, and I said, all right, I just got to stay in AA. So I just took my Valium, smoked my weed at night to help me sleep, and I, you know, that kind of stuff. And I went on panels and had commitments. There. I was in a really big meeting, you know, I... Uh, they threw me out after 
I forget how long, almost a year in there, it threw me out. But I, when I was there, my friend Mike, who I think might be on the line listening, uh, Mike Steve, he came into this group with a, another friend. They were, you know, biker guys, and they had some big Harleys out there, and they came in, and they sure didn't look like they fit into this group because everyone was wearing pullover shirts and stuff and clean-shaven and all that good stuff, and these guys came in. And Mike recognized me across the place, uh, you know, from the old days, you know, in school and stuff. And, uh, so he gave me his number and everything, and when they threw me out of this group, because I never could stay sober, and, well, the real reason I was asked to leave this group was, um, and I, I wear that like a badge now. No offense to anybody that might be a member of that group, but I'll give you a clue. After I was thrown out of there, I didn't shave again for 14 years, I think. But out of that group, I, I, uh, I what happened was Sandy came down from the mountains, kind of followed me a little bit and see what I was up to, and she came to the, the meeting, and she got tried to get involved in, the, in that group, and I heard that she'd gone out with some guy or something there one day. and So the next time, the next Wednesday, she came to the meeting. I stood out at the door, and I wouldn't let her in. I mean, this was my meeting. You can't come in here, you know. And of course, my sponsor came up to me afterwards and said, you can't keep people out of the meeting. I said, well, yeah, I can. That's, you know. So uh, I, you know, it wasn't long before they asked me, maybe you need to go somewhere else. And that's when I called Mike. Mike came and picked me up on his bike and, and uh, took me to the 5 and 10 it was back then on 14th Street. And um, and then from there, he introduced me to the West Side Alano Club. And I went from this strong, active group that where everybody stays sober forever kind of an image to the Alano Club. And that's where I ended up getting sober. Now, what I was doing in the Alano Club, of course, was I was taking my pills and pretending to be sober. You know, I called it acting as if, acting as if I was sober because I wasn't. And I did that for a few years in there, and I uh, I told Mike, well, no, I didn't. What I did, I got it, because when you're in AA, you get a sponsor, right? And I got a sponsor. He told me to get a job, you know, so I went and got a job in some horrible factory, and, you know, I was doing that, but I had insurance. So whenever I led the, the beginner's meeting on Tuesdays, the topic that I would pick back then, because I like to hear about it, is what happened. I love to hear what happened, people describing what happened. Because it's all kind of different but similar. And it was hard for me. Well, mine was kind of easy. What I used to be like was a little hard to remember. And what happened was easy for me because I had this job. I was taking my Valium and the other stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, pharmaceutical heaven. And, um, I mean, I had an impressive Valium habit, believe me, more than I could believe I was taking it. I had several doctors, people that bought pharmacies, you know, all the different resources to keep going. This was all in the name of trying not to drink, by the way. I'm an alcoholic, and I can't keep myself sober. It's just, you know. So I'm plugging along in this nightmare and pretending to be sober, and um, a day came where I couldn't get anything. I couldn't get any of the pills that I took, any of the things that I needed to hold me together in my skin to pretend to be sober. I didn't pretend to be human, I guess. And... um I called this friend of mine, and I said, uh, Daryl, I'm not really sober, but I am about to be, you know? And he suggested, maybe you better go see the uh, personnel manager, you know, and tell her what's going on. And I went in and told her, I'm strung, up, strung out on these pills, and I can't stop. And they put me in my first psych unit. The funny thing about it was that um, the factory that I worked in, was a little job shop with like 300 employees, and... Uh, and across the street was this 
mental hospital, and that's where they put me across the street in this mental hospital. I thought I was in St. John's or something back then, but it turned out I was in this place in West LA. And you know, I uh, it took quite a while to detox me. I remember that uh, I was lying in this bed, and you know, coming off of the valley and stuff, it's pretty hairy. And I was really, my mind was just racing like a, you know, like a freight train, and I was just shaking. I couldn't sleep or anything. And I was laying there one night, just going slowly and changing my mind. And this thought went through my head. It was about my daughter that I hadn't seen in a year. She was three years old, maybe. And this thought went through my head. This was a gift from you guys back then, before I was even sober. Thought went through my head at that point, and I'm pretty sure I was sober then laying in bed, that, um, that my daughter was one of God's kids and she was going to be all right. And that her mother, Sandy, was one of God's kids and she was all right. And the biker in Bellflower they moved in with was one of God's kids too. And you know, I fell asleep. When I got up, I got on my knees and I, I prayed for the first time to a power that I was aware of right there. I think the book described it as um, an overwhelming conviction of the presence of God. I didn't know what it was, but I got on my knees and I prayed. And I got up and I went into the day room. And there was these ladies, you know, patients sitting around the table there. And I walked up to them and I, I whispered, I got God. You know, I didn't want to say it too loud in case, you know, people, what they think of me. Keeping in mind I'm in a freaking mental hospital worried about what they think of me because I found God, you know. So I had a spiritual experience or awakening, whatever you want to call it. And it was powerful to me. It was it was enough for me to make a start in this thing, you know. It's like, whoa, something happened, you know, something very strong and different. So I was in, you know. I didn't think I'd stay sober, but I was in today, you know. And and that was enough to get me going. I certainly don't believe it'd be enough to keep me sober today from that point to this, but it was really enough for me to make a start because I had a problem with God. I didn't believe that there wasn't a God. I wasn't atheist. I just believed that God was part of the problem. You know that old that old. Um, Testament God, you know, fire and brimstone and everything bad that happened to me was God just socking it to me for, you know, some other thing I didn't know. So that's a tough way to get sober on a, a God like that. So this experience I had really helped me at the beginning, you know. And, and I went out on a pass because uh, I was getting a little better and I got out on a pass and I went over to a new meeting at 26 and Broadway, Santa Monica, and, uh, and uh, I don't know, I wasn't sober too long. And just, uh, so I'm in there, it was quite a ways before the meeting, I got there early, and this guy came up to me, and he said, he knew I was new, uh, you know, I, I, nobody ever came up to me, when I got sober this, this time, no one ever came up to me and said, are you new? They just came up and said, welcome, or get out of the way, depending on who it was, you know. But um, I, uh, I'm at this meeting, this guy says, so do you have a sponsor? I said, yeah. And he said, have you done a third step? And I said, yeah. My sponsor said I did it in my uh, in my room in the hospital. He said, well, would you care to do a third step with me right now? And I said, sure, whatever. We went out on the lawn on 26th and Broadway. Traffic wasn't by, lunchtime. Got on our knees. He held my hand and we said the third step prayer. Now, it was not as powerful for me as it was in that hospital room. But... You know, shit, it mattered to me what people thought driving by with me on my knees holding some dude's hand. 
but um, I did it anyway. You know what I mean? I mean, I think that's called willingness, and that's the key to this whole thing. Because I did not believe that this would work. I didn't understand it. I wasn't a student of the book. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, my first big book. I, I don't know where it is now, but but it was the second edition. And um, I remember reading, you know, more on alcoholism because that's what I wanted to find out about. So, I, so I'm reading this chapter, and it gets to the point where, uh, you know, this jaywalker, you know, gets you know gets a thrill out of running in front of fast-moving vehicles and stuff. And I just thought, what bullshit is this? You know, it's ridiculous. Now, I want to tell you, when I got sober and I was in this meeting, my friend Kevin named all the meetings, and this one was called Gurus or Us. It was a real step study, real intense, you know. And we'd go to that and joke around, you know, and... Um, in a long time. I love humility in other people, and I I have it in me, but mine's is circumstantial more than anything. I never got sober out of any kind of goodness in my heart. It was just situational, you know. I'm, I don't claim any, any wonderment here. I'm just, you know, wanted to stay alive for some reason, and I still do. So, um, wow, I'm running out of time here already. I, um, I got sober... Uh, I was at the Ilano Club a lot and went all over the place. And, um, you know, a, a couple of things that happened to me was, well, first, I, I'm doing the steps, right? I, I, I did this inventory. I was pretty new when I did it. It's a guy that I asked to sponsor me. He said, guys, you've been around a long time. We're going to die, so let's get right into it. So we did. We got right into it. I, I did an inventory. It was very honest, you know, for the condition I was in at the time. It was real honest. And, uh, I remember this guy had a house in Venice, a little house, and I going down the alley to his house, and I'm thinking, man, I don't know about this, you know, I don't even know this guy. But I went in there and I did it. I read this stuff, well, I read it to him, and he pointed out some stuff, and he gave me some directions, and I, I left his house, and, you know, people get an experience from that, a spiritual experience from sharing their inventory sometimes. I was walking down the alley going, what the hell did I just do sharing this stuff with this guy? You know, my God, am I crazy or what? So, uh, you know, I didn't feel that, you know, whole wonderment of, of the fifth step at that time. But what I've heard over and over again in meetings over the years is what I experienced. I, I was at the Alano Club that night, and as the meeting started, I really felt, wow, I'm doing this thing. I'm really doing this thing. That's the first gift I got from that fourth step. Now, I didn't know how powerful it was combined with six and seven and eight and nine because those things were removed, but I didn't know that until after looking back, you know. Very powerful, very powerful, these steps. And I, I didn't have a lot of faith in it. I was just doing it out of desperation. So I'm telling anyone that's new there, you don't have to buy into this. You don't have to. The only thing you need to believe is that you you got a problem with alcohol. You know, and if you do that, you do this other stuff, it'll start to get clearer as you go along. It really will. You don't have to buy into it. You just have to be desperate enough to do it. And uh, I think it was that um, just hanging on to that that thread, you know, to, and then we have to give away what we find. It's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's a, it really is a circle. It's a circle and a triangle. Um, okay, I'm, uh, you know, I was talking about the fifth step. So I remember, I, I, so I called my sponsor back on the sixth step, and I said, how do I become entirely ready to have God remove all my defects of character? 
he said, John, God's so blown away that you're doing this thing. He's not going to be that particular about it. And, you know, thank God for sponsors. I was like, cool, man. This God thing is, oh, give me a break. I'm just doing the best I can, you know. And that helped me a lot, actually. That, you know, God just, you know, he's just happy that I'm doing this stuff, you know. And I didn't realize till later on what this, what this 12 steps create in, in, in a person. In a desperate drunk, it creates a human being, a relatively kind, caring human being, like Abby was talking about, you know. Came out of nowhere. I was about as selfish as you can get. And then I, I, I called my sponsor later on, down the road, a month later, maybe or less, and I said, you know, that four step I did, I was really out of it then, and, and there's more stuff's coming up. He's like, well, first we were doing the ninth step. I, he told me to, to write down the first 12 things, the first 12 people that I harmed, and what, and then take it to him. And I thought, 12 people that I harmed, I don't know if I can come up with that many. Well, you know, the joke's on me because once I started writing them down, I probably stopped at 14 or so, and I took them over to the sponsor. I think I was five months over, maybe that. Anyway, so I'm, I'm doing this ninth step. I'm kind of like a going a spiritual china shop. So he looks over the eighth step, and he says, so who'd be the hardest person on here to make an amends to? And I'm not sure why I said it, but I said probably my ex-wife. I was married in my early 20s, Paula. Wonderful person, wonderful woman, you know, would fit in with the old hippie kind of thing, you know, the flowery dresses. Just a really sweet, beautiful human being. What she just thinks she likes problem guys or something. But so he's like, that's why he's like, great, that's the first one you're going to do. So, oh, okay. He said, yeah, when you go home, I want you to track her down. Because I, I talked to her in six or seven years or more. I don't know where she was. Heard she'd moved up to San Francisco. Anyway. I go home. He told me if you get a hold of her on the phone, you can just should just make the amends right there and then because you don't want to walk up to her door unannounced, you know, and disrupt her life. She made me remarried and stuff. So, so anyway, I got home. I had no idea to get a hold of her, but I knew where my ex-mother-in-law lived, and I had got her number. And I started to call my ex-mother-in-law to find out how to get a hold of Paula. And I got to tell you, when I picked the phone up, I put it back down, and I said, I just won't drink. I won't drink. I'll just smoke pot. So I got on my knees, and I asked God to help me to do this amends, because I could do it. And I got up, and I dialed my ex-mother-in-law's number, and Paula answered the phone. So here we were. And I went down the list, you know, I said, this is the reason I'm calling, in order to be free, you know, the alcohol and drugs, I need to, you know, go back and clean up my past, and this is part of it, and I'm contacting you to, to make amends for, you know, the way you were treated, and, you know, I didn't take the marriage seriously, and, you know, and she was just, she kept interrupting me, saying, you're not taking anything, you know, she couldn't believe it. I don't know, nothing, no pills, nothing. She was like, wow, so, um, she said, you know, I still love you, and I said, no, I didn't know that, you left me. She said, I couldn't watch you killing yourself anymore. I was like, wow, you know. She said, yeah, I still love you. In fact, she never divorced me. She signed the papers. We met some years ago. She never divorced me. I found that out later. Anyway, so we were going to meet for dinner that weekend, you know, everything like that. And um, I get a call the next day from her brother-in-law that she was shot and killed the day before. 
And it was apparently, I found out later, that it was an uh, ex-boyfriend she'd broken up with, and he'd been harassing her. And she had uh, she had a place out in Hawthorne, I think. She was getting painted, so she was staying with her mother for a couple of days. And so there we were, and um, this guy, you know, shot her. And um, I was more in shock than anything else, and I uh, I, uh, I went to, you know, the, to the, the, the service for her, and and afterwards, I went to the family's house, and there was her sister and her mother. And, you know, when I got to hear it, you know, there was some bikers there and stuff from her, you know, the people she'd been hanging out with recently. And, uh, but I was there sober. Someone loaned me a suit, but I didn't have one. And, uh, and I was there, and, and I heard, got to hear her mother and sister tell me how, how Paula was bragging to them about what I was doing and everything, and that I called. And, they, you know, it was really, it was nice to hear. And I want to say this. I've got a few minutes left. The amends for me was just straight ahead, just doing them. Like, like I called Sandy to make an amends to her. She's like, I don't give a shit whether you're sober or not, asshole. You know. Many months later, she did tell me I'm really grateful to sober because I ended up raising our daughter. She moved in with me when she was ten. She's like, so who's in charge here, pal? I don't know. No, it's not you. You know, she was pretty tough at 10 years old she was really something else and uh you know i never laid a hand on her but i sure wanted to and to put her in a place when she was 17 and she ran out of there and was homeless for a while anyway she's hanging in there now she's doing the best she can she's really beautiful so she can always get a new guy you know no problem there it's just what to do with them afterwards you know that was me in the old days too you know I think all my relationships were training wheel relationships before I met Abby, you know. When I, when I, you know, when I, I told the sponsor about the fourth step and I needed to do more, you know, another inventory, he said, no, it's time for the tenth step. I was taught to do a tenth step with a pen and paper every day. And selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And so I still do that every day. Uh, this sponsor then was a big Eastern guy. He had a a degree in theology, so he also was kind of a cleric or whatever they're called, a preacher or something. And he, but he did a lot of meditation, so he taught me a, a meditation that I was been doing for all, all my sobriety. And I added another meditation to that. And, and like it says, in, and I think it's in 12 and 12, one of the other books, not the big book, it says, uh, Bill wrote, there's a direct link between self-examination and meditation. And I found that to be really true. Because what I don't get in the 10th step bubbles up in my inventory. It's a beautiful process. And I do that every day because, you know, I can't keep myself sober. I'm just not that powerful. And, uh, you know, that was the thing about it that I didn't understand is that when I took the first drink, my choice was gone. And because of the mental obsession, I didn't have a choice to begin with. Now, today at least, I have a choice. But I need help from every one of you guys. And I want, to, I want to really thank again, you know, um, Earl and then Paul Piper passing on my name number, and Glenn and, and the newcomer guys out in uh, the East Empire and all the folks out in uh, Tucson and up in San Francisco. And you know how it goes. You tell two friends and they tell two friends. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you had to hear what I had to say. And, uh, you know, as, as some of you know, I got hit with, with, you know, when I was two months sober, I woke up paralyzed on the left side and acquired a spinal cord injury. So the whole thing's been a, a rough ride for me every day, and it's been a day at a time the whole time, you know. And now I got this progressive MS, and I, I, you know, I think I've been to four meetings in the last nine months. 
except the ones we had at our house. And it's, I'm so grateful we're not on Zoom because, you know, I just kind of look like I did in the last nursing home, you know, like a freaking, you know, shot collar for the Aryan Brotherhood, Folsom or something, you know, with my hair and beard and stuff. And um, yeah, I'm just grateful to, to still be here another day. I'm grateful that I'm able to do this, to actually tell my story a little bit, what I can remember today, you know. And uh, I want to tell you that I that I love everybody there. And uh, and it's really cool because the people that left, I don't get to see them leave. And there's always been a few fans of mine that like to leave when I got up to speak, you know, and I'm a sensitive drunk, so, but, you know, so I don't get to see that. That's a beautiful gift, too. And, uh, you know, and again, thanks, Heather, for putting this thing together, you know, on the phone. And, and uh, when it goes on Zoom, I'm ready to go. I'm just grateful I didn't have to do Zoom tonight. And uh, happy birthday again, Pat. Welcome to anybody that's new. And God bless us all. Wash your hands. Thanks, everyone. That was John from the L.A. area with over 30 years sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks very much, John. The subject matter for our next podcast will be the things we don't like about 12-step programs in general. If you'd like to share your opinions to possibly be included in the show, please leave a comment on our Facebook page or on Twitter, the handle for both being at SquirrelCageAA. Since we don't upload on a predictable schedule, you can be notified when that or any other new show drops if you like us on Facebook or set up notifications on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and cue the outro in 3, 2, 1. You have safely exited the squirrel caves, providing thought-provoking recovery conversations which may result in a resentment or, at the very least, provide you with something other than a drunk along. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion on this or any previous podcast, post them on Facebook at SquirrelKJA and or join us on Twitter at SquirrelKJA. Part strange and seemingly unrelated music is Cold Sober and Basa Antigua, courtesy of, and we have to say all this to get free music, Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com by Attribution 3.0 license from creativecommons.org slash licenses slash by slash 3.0 slash. So remember, the great obsession for every sober alcoholic is a desire to control and enjoy their thinking. So give that up like we did and we'll have new stuff for you soon.